Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Hey everybody, welcome to Reasonable Doubts. I'm Jeremy Bean. With me is Dr. Luke Galen. Peace. And uh, at least for the first part of the show, we're not going to have Mr. David Fletcher with us on the show because he is, and uh, this is the truth, uh, he is starring in a Val Kilmer movie right now. Oh, is it, is it the, the Doors 2? <laughs> I don't, I don't know what it is, uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing it'll be a minor role. But yes, uh, Fletch will be hitting the big screen in a theater near you eventually, and we'll fill you in on all the gory details and fanboy antics later. Somebody from this podcast had to hit it big, and it was Dave. We got an exciting show today. We're mostly going to be talking about miracles. We have a real live Ghostbuster that we're going to interview in the studio Joe Nickel. Joe Nickel is perhaps one of the most famous paranormal investigators and also a skeptic. And we're going to interview him about miraculous appearances, all sorts of strange religious paranormal phenomena that are often used as evidence for the existence of God and the supernatural more generally. We also have a great uh, God Thinks Like You segment where our very own Dr. Luke Galen will be explaining the psychological basises of certain ecstatic religious experiences. So Dr. Loco Dico. Lika Luca boom boom down. But first I wanted to respond to some email from our listeners. Um, we just came off of our month-long break uh, with our last episode, episode 20, which was kind of a documentary, so we didn't usually do the uh, address the emails and other concerns like that. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody. I was really surprised at the huge response we got from episode 20, the uh, Long Lake Retreat documentary that we did. Um, a lot of encouragement, a lot of praise, and uh, a lot of people saying that it's inspired them to see what they can do to start or join a local group in their area, and we're absolutely thrilled to hear that that's happening. And we have another email that I briefly wanted to address as well before we move on to other things. This one is from Dr. Dan. Dr. Dan writes, Hello, let me start by saying that I have recently began listening to your podcast, and thus far I think you're doing pretty good. Thanks. The world needs more skeptically related material. I must, however, point out that some possible problems. Your podcast seems to carry a slight political bias. It may or may not surprise you to know that a very large percentage of skeptics do not fit into the perceived liberal Democrat pigeonhole. Though I hesitate to use the word conservative when describing skeptics, many are just that. Barring the religious points, many do lean to the right. My intent in telling you this is not to ask for some political correctness, but to rather, but rather for you to be as even-handed as possible when addressing political-type issues. The reason is that politics does not mesh well with skepticism because one's political views will always be biased. In short, it becomes a battle of opinions, not fact. Religion, on the other hand, is fair game because it falls within the paranormal target. Also, Dr. Dan says, there are many religions and Christianity should never be the sole target. I hope you guys do not think I am trying to sell out your opinions to some moderate medium. I am not. I just think that it is always better to unite as many skeptics as possible rather than alienate people due to a trivial reason such as politics. So I thought this one was worth addressing. I, I see Dr. Dan's point, especially from an organizational standpoint. In addition to working on the podcast, I also volunteer for a local skeptic group. And uh, I've been very concerned there uh, in uh, hearing the complaints of some people who are more conservative than the majority, which tend to be more liberal, at least in our particular local group. And I, I share Dr. Dan's sentiment in that context exactly. I, I think that um, 
really what should bring us together are our common values that are clearly skeptical values, clearly secular values, separation of church and state, that sort of yeah, thing. We have Ayn Randians here. We have libertarians. Absolutely. Uh, and those people hang out with us. Uh, and, uh, you know, we get into political, arg political arguments about things because, uh, you know, they might not be in the majority, but they're still in the group. They're still welcome. We still like them. Right. And as long as the it's I think I, we prefer, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but I think that most people feel this way around here. And that is that we prefer to focus on the, the method of finding out the truth, right. science, whatever like that, whatever the outcome might be. So if right. somebody could defeat my arguments on taxing wealthy people, you know, uh, and rather than saying I'm just a hippie, if they can provide some sort of empirical argument, then that's, right. that's fair game as far as I'm concerned. Right. And so I think some really good dialogue has been there. And, and so I, I um, and in fact, I spent a little bit of time uh, when I initially deconverted as a pretty hardcore libertarian. And so I can sympathize with other conservatives who feel left out. Now, that's in my role as being a member of an organization, as a volunteer for an organization, Luke being on an advisory board for our local, local group here. Now, as far as the podcast is concerned, one of the reasons why we've just frankly talked about our own political views and our own um, liberal Democrat leanings is that um, we're an independent podcast. Um, we are not uh, officially fronted by any sort of organization. Of course, we get a lot of support from our local free-thinking group, CFI Michigan, um, but we do not speak for that organization, and uh, we, we gain no financial support or anything like that. Um, and so really, when you listen to this show, Reasonable Doubts, you're hearing the viewpoints of Jeremy Bean, David Fletcher, and Luke Galen, and that's pretty much it. And to us, politics is very much a concern. Uh, so we've never tried to ever alienate any of our conservative listeners. And I think this is especially an important point to make before the election season uh, uh, comes about. In fact, I think when we have handled political topics, I think we've been pretty Didn't we even go after Obama that time for the, all the God talk? We Certainly. said that we were dismayed by both candidates for using God talk. Right. And we've given credit to McCain, of, well, the former McCain of uh, before this election cycle. <laughs> Pre-Sarah McCain. <laughs> That's right, um, for, for the integrity that he used to possess on this issue. Um, but for me, I don't think the politics is always entirely separate from some of the religious issues. And, and so I think we would be stopping our conversation short if we were to if we were to censor every political statement that we might make take like sex education right. you know i think there is an empirical evidence for that and usually sure. the argu only argument against it that i hear is a religious argument uh, or right. you know a conservative argument or take like uh, when we talk about things with um, you know evolution and creation that's often associated with being like a hippie liberal professor thing you know i think our defense of it is based on the science not on the basis of our political thing it just so happens that a lot of those things do tend to coincide with right. liberal politics. So I, when people say politics and you know science shouldn't mix, I agree with that in the abstract, but there are political decisions that are based on science, global warming, or mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's the most effective policy to carry out the, this thing, environmental issues, things like that. And so I think if those happen to coincide, if I can provide some sort of argument, scientific right. argument that's based on reason and evidence. You know, we, we tend to keep our political commentary focused on those types of issues. Yeah, I can think of it. Here's an argument where I would, I would side with conservatives more than liberals, and that would be like a, the argument against extending postmodernism to other areas other than right. literary criticism. So, right. you know, you probably, I don't know if you get this. And we've idea. criticized multiculturalism yeah. that we think sometimes oversteps the boundaries. And uh... and look at evolutionary psychology. There's an issue which often pits, uh, pits non-religious uh, you know, uh, evolutionary people like uh, uh, that are from one end of the spectrum, like Steven Pinker or whatever, arguing that there's a genetic influence on things against the more traditional liberal. It's all environment. We're all a blank right. slate. So there's an issue where I actually often end up siding with people that say there's a genetic influence on things. There's nature as well as nurture. That's not right. a liberal, traditionally liberal academic position. Right. Teaching alongside a humanities faculty. Uh, especially uh, at an art college where I happen to teach, I often come across as probably one of the more one of the more conservative voices amongst my peers. Um, but again, it's because this is data driven and uh, and looking for some sort of empirically verifiable worldview. 
So I thought it was important to address um, Dr. Dan's email. I'm very glad that he shared it with us and make clear where we're coming from on these issues. Well, can I say something about the the second part of it, about picking Absolutely. on Christianity? And that is, is that, uh, I don't know about you, but it's, that's, that's what I am just most familiar with, and that's the background that most of us are, are, are living amongst here. Right. It's not, I can remember times that we have talked about Islam, uh, in particular things like the freedom of speech issue in, in Europe mm-hmm. or things like that. It's just that um, I think because we're from that background, we know the most about it. And from my personal God thinks like you segments, that's what we have the most empirical evidence on. There's nobody right. in Saudi Arabia doing research on right. Islamic, you know, sp- scripting in tongues or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just it's not to imply that that Christianity is our whipping boy. It's just that that we have more stuff uh, to talk about because we're more knowledgeable about that. And we can do it more sincerely. Uh, You know, one of the issues with Islam is it it deserves criticism in several areas. uh, But um, without having, you know, uh, Luke, Luke, I and Dave all have years of religious education and uh, in in some cases, um, even theological training. You have to have some of that background before you can accept some of the nuances of the Christian position. Um, one of the things that bothers me about a lot of skeptics is I don't think they have that background. And I think they go off criticizing Christianity in ways that um, is not productive, it's not useful, it's not fairly representing Christianity. Now, I can appreciate that from our side, and so I get, I get very hesitant to go off criticizing other religious traditions that I don't understand to that. Yeah, that's a that more pragmatic extent. argument, too, and that is that I think each person should clean their own house first. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and it's probably less effective for if we were to always criticize Islam, and that's something that annoys me often about uh, religious people in the United States who go off on Islam for the exact same criticisms that they're vulnerable to. You know, and right. I sometimes like, oh, it's very easy to because of from things like terrorism, it's very easy to pick on uh, uh, that because it's a current event with with Muslims and and uh, but I, that irritates me because the exact same processes are involved with fundamentalism in each every religion. So you know, yeah. uh, and so I think that those people. Um, you should each religion should clean its own house first, and we're we're not likely to be convince anybody who's uh, is a Muslim because they're likely to say, "Look, they're from Christians. They're from a Western background. Right. What the hell would they understand about our religion and our upbringing?" And I think that's partially valid. Yeah. Now that being said, I, I do I do think there's a little bit of truth into that. Is that I do want to start bringing in information about more world religions and covering different traditions. We've touched on Buddhism a little bit, and we do have in the planning. We're just waiting for the right opportunity to find a, a, the right person to interview and, and bring some more information in it. Uh, talking about Buddhism and uh, and some Eastern traditions and and discussing those and so hopefully we will bring in a more diverse uh, sample of religious perspectives into the show next to week. Come. Zoroastrianism <laughs> pro con. All right, and with that, uh, I think we're going to proceed into God thinks like you. Well, that was fascinating material that was in no way recorded after what I'm saying right now. Yeah, the um, often the argument is made uh, for the existence of God or supernatural powers on the basis of miracles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, um, and this is frequently uh, also people refer to personal experiences of a miraculous or exceptional nature. I like tongue speaking or uh, having ecstatic religious experiences. In fact, David, if you remember the debate that you did against mm-hmm. the theology department, one of the questions was from a woman in the audience who said, if God doesn't exist, how would you explain tongue speaking? Right. Yeah. And this was a girl who had had that experience. <clears throat> Correct. So it was a very personal personal question for yeah, her. So yeah, so m- many people use, I guess you'd call that in philosophy terms, the argument for God's existence on the basis of a personal Exceptional experience, a subjective experience. Sure. It's important to actually, uh, as with this case of this woman, probably didn't even realize that this has been studied for uh, for a long time now about how perfectly uh, materialistic events in the brain can lead to the per- lead to perceptions of God or spirits or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so tongue speaking is one of them, but also even things like meditation 
uh, experiences or things like uh, we, we know from epileptic patients they often have experiences of God not just during their seizure but have the experience of things taking on a profound significance hmm. uh, that's tied directly to brain events you can hook their brain up to an EEG machine and see this happening so I think it's important to, to, to go over some of this research because it not only tells us about the nature of religious experiences but also of uh, things like what's the origin of religion is it possible that religion itself might be due in part to the tendency of our brain to assume certain brain states with experiences, exceptional experiences. So some of the things I just mentioned, like, um, for example, uh, epilepsy. There's a history in psychology and neurology of studying epileptic patients because many of them have had seizure experiences that are they identify as being religious in kind. God did this to me or something like that. So we know that there's areas in the brain... Uh, uh, like in the temporal lobe, which is right around your ear area, that often when they're, when it's activated, people hear voices or things take on a meaning to them, mm-hmm. not just sounds, but like they think that God is speaking to them or that they interpret as being infused with uh, a religious meaning. Like Dostoevsky, for example, was a, the author, was had uh, epilepsy. and he I didn't know that. Yeah. I like Dostoevsky. I didn't know he was uh, an epileptic. Right, and so even oh. even when they're not seizing, like his character, the murderer in the Brothers Karamazov, was mm-hmm. uh, was was an epileptic, and everything to him was right. very profoundly philosophical and had religious implications. That's one sign, actually, of a temporal lobe uh, patient. Uh, many mm-hmm. of them are like that between their seizures. Wow. Um, so that, that's historically that gave some indication that there's certain brain areas that might be involved with religious meaning and sensation. But the other one, as we mentioned, the big one is glossolalia or tongue speaking. Right. So now is there a, a connection between people who are predisposed to things like epilepsy and people who experience glossolalia or is that something that anyone can can experience? That's one of the ongoing questions. People have gone back and forth over the past decades with, is glossolalia a sign of pathology mm-hmm. or can anybody do it? And there's different sure. camps come back and forth with, I think, the the way the because pendulum... There's, there's some denominations uh, out there or yes. uh, theological viewpoints where they expect their congregation to speak in tongues as a sign of salvation. Right. And if, if they do not manifest that tongue-speaking behavior, it's it's seen as this is a sign that they a real change hasn't happened in their life. Yeah, the Pentecostal denominations like, you know, for example, Assembly of God mm-hmm. or some of those, yeah, it's it's normative within that denomination. Now, some of the members can't uh, produce it more readily than, than others, and so this often leads to theological splits in the congregation where, oh, sorry, you must not have the spirit because you're not able to do that. Sure. And, and psychologists have come in with their battery of tests and have done, you know, like basically this group who does tongue speak spontaneously, this group doesn't. What's the difference? And a lot of that stuff is inconclusive. There's really yeah. not a lot of personality differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a related question I would have is that I've heard just, you know, testimonials from people talking about this stuff that they would fake tongue speaking to show the rest of their parishioners that they mm-hmm. had the ability. Now... Right. But does that add an extra layer of difficulty? Who's who's faking the speaking so a, in tongues? A fake it till you make and it. And who of really who really thinks that they're actually having ecstatic utterances? It's really um, interesting because there's a certain people that fake at one end of the extreme, and there's other people that view it as being spontaneous. And, and this gets into the whole like a uh, brain free will determinism issue. The middle area are people who can be um, probably. Sp- trained to do it, but they perceive it as not being under their willpower. Uh, For example, there's a study done in the 80s by a guy named Spanos, uh, where he trained normal college volunteers to speak in tongues by mimicking, basically learning, listening to a recording, then trying it themselves. Hmm. And it was found that like three quarters of volunteers, so these are normal college students, were able to produce tongue speaking after a few minutes of training. So he did instructions, for example, like listen to this and then just let the syllables go. Don't try to control them. Mm -hmm. And most of them were able to do so in a way that was indistinguishable. People rated, uh, you know, listen to recordings of actual tongue speaking in church and the students tongue speaking could not distinguish that. So -hmm. it is possible for normal people to be uh, to learn how to do that. What's interesting, though, is that even they reported and these were not people who spontaneously religiously did it, that they didn't feel as if it was under their control. Hmm. That is, the sense of willpower was gone with them. It, they reported things like, gee, I just started saying syllables and it flowed on and I could control it. Right, they it. just kind of gave in to the, the, the movement. They surrendered to the... To the, the spirit. spirit. Right, which, which right. It, it kind of matches in the church service. The people that do it say, it's not me, it's God. So since I'm not controlling this, their attribution is, must be God. Mm-hmm. Whereas a normal, quote-unquote, you know, non-religious person would say, I'm not doing it, huh? 
That's yeah. interesting. Uh, there's also <laughs> a, a good uh, a good read for anybody who's into this sort of thing is uh, there's a guy who does work with people with brain research called his name's Andrew Newberg. Actually, he has a I see uh, pictures of him in that new Bill Maher trailer of the oh, religious cool. movie. Oh, yeah, where yeah. He's a psychiatrist who studies people like meditators and tongue speakers uh, using brain scanning. So, like, for example, he'll have people come in the lab and do uh, a PET scan where he'll inject them with a little radioactive tracer, and it lights up areas of their brain where they're using activity that uses up oxygen, and so he has them doing normal speaking and tongue speaking. And what he finds is that uh, the, the frontal lobe, so the, the part of the brain that usually controls volitional action, I'm going to get up and do this and that, becomes less activated when people go into their tongue-speaking state, which hmm. kind of accords with their subjective perception that they're not controlling it. So right. the, the speech areas are going, but nobody's in the driver's seat. Right. And, and just for our listeners who couldn't see the book that you just held up, what's the name of the book? Hold it up higher so ev- all our, <laughs> everybody here, can Radio see. Here, Radio Land, it's right here. <laughs> uh, it's called Why We Believe What We Believe, Uncovering Our Biological Need for Meaning, Spirituality, and Truth by Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-R-G. Uh, he also wrote an earlier book with a co-author called Why God Won't Go Away, which is similar to that. Right. And this is this is a fairly new book, right? Yes. So this book was published in 2006. Yeah. So okay. it's fairly recent. So um, he also, uh, like with with people that do uh, more traditional Christian-type prayer that's not tongue-speaking, so like nuns, he brought a group of nuns in and had them do their deeply kind of pious nun praying where they just go after God. I think, you know, they're Catholics. That there were different areas of the brain than the tongue speakers. There it was that they became more focused. The areas of the hmm. brain in the frontal area became more active, uh, similar to actually Buddhist monks who were doing uh, Buddhist meditation, that they became more focused in their attention as in contrast to the tongue speakers who became less focused. So there's different, I guess the, the bottom line there is that we're learning more that there's different types of brain states that correlate with different religious states. Right, mm-hmm. right. So and, it really is kind of a, a loss of control that's going on. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure some might find that that science confirms their view of speaking in tongues because some believe that mm-hmm. it's a prayer language that God is, um, God is speaking through them. I, I thought I remembered reading somewhere a study that pretty much showed that was impossible as far as um, that there's no, like, there's no intellectual content to what's going on. Do you know what I'm talking about? uh, You mean an analysis of the syllables in the tongue speaking? Right. Well, they were, like, the speech areas were firing, but there's no syntax. There's no, it's clear that this is when when linguists have analyzed this. Right. When linguists have analyzed the content of the tongue speaking things, they find, I guess, what what you would expect in that is that there's no, it's very repetitive, like we would say, almost like baby talk, that there's, it's a certain type of speech where you repeat a lot of things like baba, gaga, gaga. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of repetitions that's not present in normal language speech. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, that it's often specific to the congregation or denomination or locale that you have. That is, it's not a standard language, but if you learn, I guess we would call it learn, to right. speak, tongue-speak in a particular congregation that does it like this, right. that, that, that the uh, linguistic characteristics are similar. You know, So if your argument is that, well, this Holy Spirit is in present in all these different forms, you know, I guess one snarky question would be, why does he sound different in this church versus that yeah, church right. in, in different traditions of tongues? And that kind of deals with the, the broader idea of these personal miracles and that sort of thing where, I mean, I was raised Christian Reformed. No one spoke in tongues in, in my church. No. Also, no one was ever demon-possessed. Sure. But um, then people who believe in demon possession always see demons the way that their congregation um, depicts demons. Sure, and frequently the, the, the answer to that when you ask like uh, believers is that they say, well, uh, those people are, you know, they're saved, they're good Christians, but if you if you don't speak tongues, it's because you're not open to the Spirit. Like they they sure. they interpret it, their attribution is that you have to be open to the Spirit to have Him flow through you, uh, and so it's a, it's like a subjective thing that he that you know you're resisting it almost. That's how they reconcile it. Right. Yeah. So Newberg, the psychiatrist who does this research, he takes kind of an agnostic approach, basically by saying. The people that come into this that are tongue speakers that he have, they, like you said, use that as, well, God, that's an area of my brain that God uses, or this confirms my belief because it shows that there's a a correlate, you know, a scientific correlate to what I experience. And, of course, an unbeliever or skeptic then would say this mm-hmm. is a purely materialistic basis to your experience, so therefore it's produced by the brain and there's no need to then say, therefore, there's an yeah. external external mm-hmm. source to it. I remember when uh, back in my early days of deconversion, I remember looking into uh, speaking in tongues and other things because I had a charismatic friend who was really into that. 
And I remember reading that, you know, this is a cross-cultural phenomena in many different religions. Yeah, it's in, almost a universal. Yeah, I, hmm. I type do, thing. Do Muslims have anything like and, this? That's a good do, question. I think not in traditional uh, Islam, but maybe hmm. in Sufi Islam, the okay. ecstatic type where they do the dancing and the dervishes. And oh, I think okay. possibly that's the case. I'll have to find out more about sure. that. Yeah, so, it, so that's another argument that people give to it being uh, kind of a brain state. And like I mentioned at the beginning, some interesting arguments about it being possibly the origin of a certain type of religiosity, yeah. and that is it's universal. So like many anthropologists say, the first proto-religions might have been, let's say, a shaman entering a trance and speaking the spirit language. And it makes sense that you'd, if you see somebody, you know, maybe he took some drugs or peyote or is dancing ecstatically. Or, or is controls, an epileptic. Yeah, or is an epileptic has some, you know, mm-hmm. mental, mm-hmm. Uh, what we would call a mental illness, that if he enters a certain state, claims to be communicating with God and has this special tongue, therefore, yeah. well, that's his, that's the spirit tongue. So for shamans, yeah. that's their personal uh, possession, like I'm... God is speaking through me now, and I'm using this special tongue, and I'll interpret it for you. You're supposed to, you know, plant your crops early this year or something yeah. like that. Well, and even today being in a church and witnessing, you know, the whole place erupt into glossolalia mm-hmm. is a frightening and very creepy thing to a skeptic, right. <laughs> even like me. I can't imagine way back in the dawn of culture and yeah. It's seeing also, something like that. It's also scary to people probably who are from a mainstream Christian tradition where they don't do that. Like Ooh, uh, yeah. a lot yeah. of like uh-huh. um, upper, you know, this used to be a kind of a north-south thing or like an upper class kind of Episcopalian Eastern people that get, sit up, stand up, sit down and sing right. their hymns. When they view these revival meetings, these tent revival things, they're shocked. Yeah. They're shocked by this behavior. What and, the hell? Uh, yeah, if you've ever on. seen, a, have you ever seen Marjo, the movie yeah. uh, mm-hmm. where you are there, when, when Marjo mm-hmm. kind of explains to, this is a guy who was a child preacher that knew the lingo he knew how to do right. uh, he's very charismatic and and he was explaining to his you know camera crew here's what's going to happen we're going to go into a church there's going to be dancing and singing there'll be people speaking in tongues and there'll be somebody who's a holdout and he kind of gives almost what i would call a social psychological explanation of yeah. other people will gather around they'll encourage they'll cajole this person by speaking in tongues the the, the tension level rises and then they'll burst forth with you know so so and oh we've got this person we'll move on mm-hmm. to the next person right. uh, and so people it's a very um, group that at least at least the initial tongue speaking is uh, like I read somewhere two thirds a group phenomena people always initiate in groups later on they might speak tongues quietly to themselves yeah. but it's a s- socially contagion phenomena it's a, yeah it's when I've seen memes it, run amok yeah when I've seen it happen. It, that describes it exactly yeah. is that people surround um, surround the person and a lot of times they all have their their hands on them and yeah it's all this attention is focused on them and everything else and and of course you know they have the catchers mm-hmm. uh, the people who walk around you right, know right. looking for somebody who's about to pass out and be slain in the spirit or something like that sure and with a lot of those other behaviors that again might be scary or kind of amusing to a secular person like yeah. you watch the the people that get pushed in the forehead and fall yes, down and sure. and have convulsions um, you've seen this also probably in Jesus camp with these children. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's essentially a school say, for yep. those children to learn how to do this. If you grow up within a Pentecostal yeah. setting that yep. you watch other people, uh, there's an emotional component to this. If you're feeling very, you know, keyed up with the music and everything on cue, every people people start to fall like bowling pins. Yeah, it's um, – I don't know if you've both seen Jesus camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the the little boy who says that he has doubts and he's yep. not sure if he yeah that he feels crazy. it oh it breaks my heart yeah. every time but it's not long before I mean he breaks down and starts crying and everyone's kind of on him and it's not long before he's he's towing the line along with everyone else yeah and yeah so other researchers have looked at this from a purely like a reward based model like a, yeah. a like a Skinner type learning thing that if you uh, that many of these people report feeling great relief and ex- ecstasy that they're in contact with God. But to them, that's a, uh, if you're having doubts, what more, uh, what better way to reduce your dissonance that, geez, is this really true, this Bible stuff, whatever, mm-hmm. than to have an experience like that, it quashes all doubt. Right. You're, uh, oh, obviously, if I did this and I spoke like this or people, you know, everyone comes around me, therefore it must be true. And so many people use this to confirm their own uh, you know, to, to squelch yeah. their skepticism. In conversations I've had with, with Christians from various different backgrounds, always from the more charismatic spiritual gifts people emphasize on just how absolute certain they are because mm-hmm. this they've experienced to me. 
good luck trying our normal skeptical repertoire of tools. Well, you know, personal testimonials are not as reliable as, uh, mm-hmm. oh, just try that on them because well, you can't argue with somebody's personal experience. Yeah, well, I felt it. One way that I approach this is not to do it in class, is not to do it head on, but first uh, remind them of the familiar psych experiments where group phenomena produce other things that the person would say is valid. So like there's the famous uh, Ash experiment where somebody is asked to judge a line angle and everybody that's Oh, says right. before him out loud what it is is working for the experimenter and they say an incorrect answer and so this you can see the guy on tape like all these people are saying it's this it's number b it's number it's letter b b b and the correct answer is c and he almost he's squinting at the picture almost as if he can't even judge for himself anymore this is outside where the, the one context. one is like a there's three lines yep. and then you have to and, pick the correct orientation right and and two of them are obviously either too long or too short. Yeah. So it's, it's used as an example of group conformity. Now, many b- people could say, well, this person is just lying to fit in with the group. But actually, there's some evidence that the person actually believes on the basis of the group. If everybody else says that this is true, right. it right. must be true. I must be mistaken. I'm, I'm wrong be because right. I, who these other people. That's yeah. like the same same type of study as the autokinetic effect yes. where you're looking at a um, you're looking at a light and just normal optical illusion stuff. You'll see a, a stationary light in a dark room. You'll see mm-hmm. it appear to move. That's just normal you optics. Know, yeah. yeah. People in the experiment who are not aware of this, they will ask them how far they saw it move. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when you put all the testimonials together from multiple people, they're views on how far did the light move will converge over time. Right. That was a, that's a classic experiment by Sharif where, where uh, yeah, so it illustrates also that you can move somebody's perception just by social right. uh, influence. Uh, and so with an experimental person planted in that experiment to give deliberately incorrect yeah. answers, it moves the group norm. So w- when you f- remind people of the social psychological stuff outside of a religious context, they're very like, oh, yeah, that's kind of strange how the group can affect people. And then, you, then what I do is start to then introduce the religious phenomenon and say, is it possible yeah. that if you're in a church, everybody else is singing, mm-hmm. uh, dancing, waving their hands, that you actually might kind of almost go along like, okay, this is kind of... But then actually the experience would take you over to where you don't any longer perceive it as you doing it consciously, right, but right. it's happening to you. And so there's a lot of interesting research coming out, not only in the brain stuff, but that people have, uh, like in hypnosis too, mm-hmm. like people have the the conscious willpower. They can do things like, you know, f- the table Ouija board stuff or yeah, right. or automatisms, automatic writing, where, uh, or you're having your hands on this pendulum with somebody else. You don't perceive yourself as volitionally doing things right. physically. It's somewhat happening to you, but that obviously is incorrect. You're doing it and you don't sure. know that you're doing it. But, like you said, there are very few arguments that we can offer that are going to convince anyone who has actually experienced this and, and believed it to be true. And that's the frustrating thing because you know, it's that yeah. personal experience. I mean, Joe Nickel can go and, and make sure the uh, statue doesn't actually have a heartbeat and that sort of thing. But for the personal experience, when it's only happening within the confines of your own brain box, um, yeah. How do you defunct that? Well, and, it, and it's, uh, you know, one, one thing that would seem like a strategy to me, but I can't really say it's ever been successful at all in getting people to think about this, but would be looking at other miracles in other traditions. You know, if, if this is enough to convince you personally that, no, this was real, that God moved through you, mm-hmm. that Jesus did something— and we can find similar testimonials from any number of different religious traditions, you know, point to that and say, well, they're, they share the same conviction. They know that what they saw was Allah or they know what they experienced was the Dharma. You would think the similarity of religious experiences would undermine the credibility of them, but uh, that that hasn't been my experience. And that's where you can get into the, um, you know, same God, different paths argument that they will will throw out yeah. often. Yeah, I, well, I I'm sure They're just some, interpreting some it wrong that, because that's yeah. their culture, but it's the same, it's the same God that or we're all tapping spirit. into. Or an evil spirit. I've heard yeah. some of them that's, said yes. Okay. That's more spirit. the one that I usually hear is that, well, d- the devil worked through them. Okay, well, um, <laughs> they sure weren't 
aware that right. the devil was working through them. Well, so the maybe the devil is yeah. working through you. Well, I think another way that that's going to be increasingly uh, effective with this is we're getting more technologically sophisticated with the brain. Uh, uh, and there's ways that you can induce this in laboratories. Has anybody heard of the transcortical magnetic stimulation? Uh, this is mentioned briefly in Michael Shermer's book in, in How We Believe uh, there's a laboratory that has these magnets now that are kind of like these paddle things, ping pong paddle size, right. and they can place them in various areas of your skull and induce them. Oh, I think them. I have heard him talk about this. Yeah, yeah. an electric field. Uh, what's interesting about that, again, is that when religious people are put in this apparatus the, and the paddles are turned on magnetically and it's focused on, like, the temporal lobe, they have the experience of a religious experience. They say, you know, God is touching me or something profound. When a secular person, like when Shermer did this, he just he had feelings like the emotions were like, oh, wow, this is an unusual kind of out-of-body thing. Right. But he interpreted it in a secular way because he knew what the experiment was going on. I think that when you can do more of this type of thing to show that you can turn it on and off, uh, your feelings. Mm -hmm. Your own perception of, you know, a profound experience is essentially a brain function. Yeah, then we can prove to people that the devil really is in the universe. That, that he's in these, <laughs> that the scientist is the devil, in yes, fact, is right. what it proves. Yes. So. Right. Yeah, and this is cl classic psychology that you have the brain experience, the physiological thing, plus your interpretive set, your cognitive, your history, your schema, all your different uh, learning things. And those product combined. It's not a, uh, your experience is the result of not any one thing, right. but of those two things combined, the way that you interpret that. If I shoot you up full of a, you know, a drug or whatever and, uh, and give you a certain expectational set, whether it's church or whether it's you know, a Grateful Dead concert, you're gonna, you're, you're, uh, your interpretation <laughs> is going to be based on the context, not just on the drug I give you. Jesus or a unicorn. Or maybe Jesus or, riding or a unicorn. Both. Well, this is a endlessly fascinating topic, and I think we can. <laughs> we have a guest in the studio. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Dave, Dave, relax. Chaka Khan, Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan. Okay. Well, I guess we should probably go on to our interview with somebody who knows all about the miraculous. That's right. We are very proud to bring to you. Mr. Joe Nickel. Joe Nickel, thank you so much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Pleasure being here. Now, this is a great opportunity for us because we almost never talk about the paranormal aspect of religious belief and also the paranormal aspect of how people try to argue for the existence of God or other supernatural beings by appealing to miracles, um, relics, and other things. As a paranormal investigator, what are some of the most common claims that you'll come across or, or common phenomena that people will discuss as evidence for their religious beliefs? Well, first of all, maybe it would be useful to define paranormal because um, – not everybody has the same definition, but I mm -hmm. use it as a very broad umbrella to include all of the supernatural okay. as well as those other things like Bigfoot or extraterrestrials, which, if they existed, might be perfectly natural mm -hmm. entities. And paranormal basically is that which is beyond the normal range of science and human experience. So it's not necessarily supernatural. Okay, but uh, with miracles, of course, you are you are talking about some contravention of natural law and and uh, something that science supposedly can't explain. And I deal with everything from apparitions of the Virgin Mary to weeping statues and other icons mm -hmm. to uh, various uh, what are called simulacra, that is, images of um, a holy figure seen okay. in. A tree bark or uh, a stain on the side of a, um, a an underpass in Chicago. Also, I deal with rosaries turning to gold, <laughs> uh, statues with heartbeats, um, uh, such as at Conyers, Georgia. Any of those and similar other things. These are all interesting, and um, while I, in my work, I tend to avoid talking about religion per se. Right. It's divisive, and right. and um, I'm not an expert in, in any aspect, really, of religion. But uh, the paranormal is my field, so when I have something investigatable, 
you know, the uh, a statue is weeping or it isn't. And it's something we can actually decide whether it is or it isn't. It can mm-hmm. be examined. It's physical. Something is happening and we can we can uh, actually decide that. The Shroud of Turin, uh, which could be genuine and not not everybody makes a claim that it's supernatural. Yeah. But there are supernatural claims that it's a, caused by a burst mm-hmm. of radiant energy <laughs> at the moment of resurrection. And so – but the fact is the Shroud of Turin is an imminently uh, – tangible, investigatable item. And the only problem is, is that you have to use the yeah. uh, an appropriate method of investigating That's what I was and not say. the yeah. wrong method of investigating. That's what I was going to say. There's but, other people who investigate these. The Catholic Church, for example, sends people around to, uh, to yes. look at these icons, visions of, of Mary. How would they go about investigating the situation uh, differently than you? Well, that's a pretty big difference quite often. And sometimes we're on the same side of things and sometimes we're not. And, of course, I've also worked with, with the Greek Orthodox uh, mm-hmm. Church. Um, uh, but the Catholic Church tends, and I think religious people in general tend, but the Catholic Church specifically, tends to look at something to see whether what's happening is consistent with church teachings. Yeah. This is, of course, of no interest to the scientific investigator who uh, does not have a dogma, should not, in fact, have any dogma. Uh, has nothing to to uh, govern him other than uh, getting trying to get the accurate facts and let the facts lead where they will. Um, in fact, uh, one of the problems with some of the investigations with, say, the Shroud of Turin, is that you have people starting with the answer, right, and then only seeking those facts which support the prior hell conclusion. If a fact does not support it, then it's rationalized. They find a way to to call it into suspicion, and mm-hmm. maybe the radiocarbon dating is an error for some reason. So, because they're saying we don't like that date, it, it disproves mm-hmm. the shrouds. We don't like that, or this test of the blood shows it's not real blood. Well, we don't like those tests, so we'll we'll say that uh, you know, and it gets them into a lot of uh, pseudoscience and uh, and sometimes outright dishonesty. But um, the the difference is therefore pretty incredible. Is this is this consistent with with uh, teachings of the church? If you take uh, someone who's uh, has an apparition of the Virgin Mary and the Virgin Mary says certain things, the uh, church is apt to sort of parse uh, what's being said and see if it's consistent with Catholic dogma. And should they say something that's quite contradictory to Catholic dogma, then this may be said to be a false. Um, uh, apparitional mm-hmm. encounter, whereas um, I'm not being bound by by any such things. I would I would look first of all to see if a person claiming that uh, that she's giving communication from the Virgin Mary, such as Nancy Fowler did at <laughs> Conyers, um, and ask, well. Why should we believe this person anyway, regardless of dogma or not? What What is it? And you, you find that when you investigate some of these people, you find that they have the traits that are associated with what's called a fantasy-prone personality, mm. uh, sort of the adult equivalent of a child's imaginary playmate. Mm. Uh, they, uh, they are able to sort of imagine an angel companion or the Virgin Mary comes and talks to them. But it's all happening in their mind, and it's yeah. not a—it's not any are kind they, of objective. Are reality. they at all consciously aware uh, uh, that they are? Maybe at some this? level, but you know, people are able to kind of dissociate a right. bit, and, and uh, children do that, and, mm-hmm. and kind of you know, their imagination is very rich, yeah. and they can really imagine that they're—they have this imaginary playmate, and most kids grow out of it, but some um, go on to become saints, and. Um, <laughs> The uh, if you're familiar with Fatima, the miracle of Fatima, I'm not uh, Catholic actually. Catholic Church, um, 1917 um, miracle um, in which uh, a little girl, uh, Lucia de Jesus de Santos, and two of her um, playmates had an encounter, a series of encounters actually with the Virgin Mary. And there was this, an incident in which uh, thousands of people had gathered at Fatima, Portugal, for uh, this appearance of the Virgin Mary. And something happened. I think it was probably no, nothing more than sort of maybe the sun kind of dramatically coming out from mm-hmm. behind the clouds. But she said, oh, look, look, the sun. 
And people stared at the sun, and they later reported that the sun danced and spun and did things in the sky. And this is a miracle of Fatima, and it is a dogma of the Catholic Church. This has hmm. been authenticated by the church, accepted as, a, really? as an so, actual okay. miracle. So this is a and, good test case to see how they go about Right. It. And I think if it happened today, the church would not authenticate it because there have since been a number of such yeah. incidents at uh, Lubbock, Texas and elsewhere, even at Conyers, Georgia. And I was with the skeptics in Conyers where we used a telescope with a, a – um, and pe- people were reporting the sun was pulsating or whatever – used a, a mylar filter, solar filter, mm-hmm. to to see. And, and yeah. of course, when people were reporting that the sun was pulsating, it was not. Yeah. And, in fact, we just know scientifically that it, in at that date in Fatima that the sun was doing no such thing. It was not pulsating because it's not <laughs> a different sun over Paris or London right. or anywhere else. Um, and we know that the sun was not doing it there, that it was only one place where a group of people – prompted to stare at the sun. And they're almost certainly having some sort of retinal effects. You know, you can't Mm -hmm. stare at something as bright as the sun well, so your eyes will kind of dart back and forth and give it a dancing effect. Or your eye muscles may sort of uh, advance and retreat, something like that. In fact, the church, to its credit, at some of these sites now, um, thinking, for example, Mother Cabrini Shrine in in Denver, uh, the church... um, warned people to stop doing this, not to hmm. stare at the sun. The one <laughs> poor lady who was desperate for a miracle for her sick child stared at the sun too long and yeah. suffered severe retinal damage. And uh, this just should not be done. Uh, but uh, Fatima was sort of the first of these uh, kinds of events and uh, was accepted by the church as an article of faith. We now can look at, at that event and we can also look at Lucia and see that she has all the characteristics of a fantasy-prone child. Mm -hmm. She was uh, highly imaginative, precocious, uh, very very given to being overdramatic, and a very charismatic little girl. And she had angel playmates and so forth. Hmm. She was just just sort of a classic fantasizing child. Uh, Her imagination seemed very real to her. Mm -hmm. And, of course, because of her charisma, she would influence everybody around her. She was a very unusual child in that sense. So that's a a case of how many of these uh, perhaps miracles that have taken place in the past as far back as biblical times, um, they appear convincing to the people around their time. Yet today we know more about the world and psychology and how things operate, scientifically minded people have to keep their ideas open to revision. Has the Catholic Church or other places that investigate miracles, are you aware of them going back and reviewing Older's miracle cases and saying, oh, no, we have something in psychology that explains this now? Does any of that ever go well, on? Well, there is some modernization of the church. I mean, the church did kind of uh, get away from the exorcisms of the Middle Ages, only maybe now they're coming back a little bit. Mm-hmm. kind of depends on the pope's own leanings and which pope right. you have and so forth. But, um, yeah, I think the church is, is, is aware of psychology and, and would not be as quick to uh, mistake mm-hmm. uh, a person with a psychological problem as being possessed, not, right. not as apt to do that. That doesn't mean they've, they've gotten rid of all ideas of demon possession. Sure. I would think the threshold for trying to demonstrate that something is miraculous would be pretty high. Uh, but but I don't know. I've never done this. Um, and I was wondering if maybe you could walk us through a test case. Say you're coming up to one of these statues that might have a heartbeat or something. Yes, that's a good um, – What yeah. would you look for to, to try to see if it was miraculous or not? Well, I have a picture that I show in some of my talks and it usually gets a laugh. It's, I, I didn't intend it to be funny <laughs> or, or a put down of anybody. But uh, it shows me with a trench coat and uh, – the stethoscope to my ears and and placed uh, to, a, to a statue <laughs> of the Virgin Mary listening for heartbeat. The, the skeptics who were with me at the time thought I was just sort of clowning around and said, oh, but you aren't actually going to go up. And I said, oh, it, no, actually, I'm actually going – I've been asked by yeah. Atlanta Channel 5 to 
check into these miracle claims, and I'm actually going to do it. The statues are said to have heartbeats. I've come to check them. Right. Be, yeah, but you're not actually going to, uh, you know, yes, actually, read yeah. my lips. <laughs> uh, well, but the sign there says not to climb up and touch. And I said, yes, but we're investigators, and we're going to ignore that <laughs> sign. And I planted someone down the trail to watch if pilgrims were coming because I I don't want to be an affront of to, to people or make fun of them or get in their way if they've come to venerate a statue or something. I shouldn't be standing in their way. They shouldn't wait on me. I should wait on them as my policy in churches hmm. uh, with weeping mm-hmm. icons and the like. I, I will get out of their way. It's their church, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I, I'm, I try always to be respectful. Well, uh, as it turns out, of course, there were no, no heartbeats. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, and the church was would have, would have, I think, been right with me on something like mm-hmm. that. Not of a not oh, of sure, objected sure. to to my to my opinions. The church is not necessarily wanting to endorse that. It, it is, after all, almost idolatry when you sure. start suggesting that a statue is more than just a statue; that it's somehow alive, yeah. that it weeps, bleeds, moves, has heartbeats, whatever, you're getting very, very close to idolatry. Yeah. Uh, maybe, in my opinion, you cross the line. Um, uh, the, usual, the usual approach for the believer is to suggest that if it is unexplainable, seems unexplainable by science, you hear that refrain yeah. a lot. Um, that therefore it's miraculous, and the that's a a logical fallacy called in Latin argumentum et ignorantium. It's an argument from ignorance. It doesn't mean the person's ignorant. Right. What it means, though, is it's an argument based on the lack of knowledge. Right. And the lack of knowledge is when you say. I don't know why that person's cancer went into remission. You can't then say, therefore, I do know what it was. It was a miracle from God. You can't say, I don't know, therefore, I do know. Mm -hmm. This is, if you reduce it, you see that it's absurd. And yet, much of the paranormal, and that's why with programs, you know, unsolved mysteries, the unexplained, the unknown, Mm -hmm. Uh, terms like that and this refrain uh, used very common with unidentified flying objects, UFOs, uh, haunted houses. We don't know what caused this, you know, sort of thing, that kind of ghost hunter claim. Well, if you don't know, you don't know. Uh, You can't even really imply because it may be that you don't know because you don't have very good evidence and weren't there and it hasn't been checked in Checked out very well. I like how paranormal supporters sometimes try to take the appeal to ignorance and use it against us to say, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, um, which is true. That would be an appeal to ignorance too. But um, it's it's ignoring the idea of burden of proof. Absolutely. I was just just, going to say that that we have to realize that the burden of proof in in any matter, and this is a – this is a hallmark of of, of law. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually in, in law that the burden of proof is on the plaintiff or the advocate of an idea, right. the person who claims a fact. And it, it's also understood among scholars and scientists to be the case with any matter, any mm-hmm. serious matter that you would assert, then the burden is on you to prove it. It's not on someone to prove a negative, right. to prove it isn't so. In so many cases, it's impossible to prove a negative. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't prove uh, that there's not an invisible uh, angel uh, right. here right now. Right. Fortunately, I don't have that burden to prove. <laughs> but you see that it's be impossible yeah. to pr- disprove it because it's invisible. And I, the fact that I can't see it and you can't see it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that uh, – you know, a visionary can't claim that he sees it, and that's good enough proof for them, and we can't prove they don't see it. Well, this is nonsense because it's it switched the burden of proof, mm-hmm. and anyone who would assert that there is an invisible entity uh, should mm-hmm. have to prove it. And then we would now, invoke even the, the further dictum that incredible claims require incredible proof and uh, even invoke Occam's razor, which says if we have two or more hypotheses that could explain something, uh, one of them being very natural and well-known and the other one being 
no evidence of it, never proven and supernatural or something, then we choose we choose the simpler one that that makes the fewest assumptions as being most likely the case. The dictum of yeah. Occam's razor, also called the maxim of, maxim of parsimony, the simplest uh, <laughs> uh, hypothesis. I, sometimes my philosophy students will get that one confused because they'll think simplest means um, something you could express in, in one sentence, whereas I always try to remind them, no, it's the simplest explanation that also accounts for all the data. Exactly. It must account for all the known data. And it's basically, my understanding is it's simplest because it makes the fewest assumptions. Right, right. And, uh, and background. But, I, but I've had this, I've had Sh- uh, Shroud of Turin advocates try to turn that around and they'll say, oh, so so you're suggesting that the Shroud was painted <laughs> by, by a genius artist who... Uh, unlike any other art, and they exaggerate how wonderful yeah. the shroud image is and how impossible it would be and so skeptic. forth. And they would say, wouldn't it just be simpler to accept that it's a, a, a miracle of, of God? You know, yeah. something like that. Well, no, you know, sir, you, you, no. you know, I don't know how you got, you know, got into college, but, but, <laughs> but uh, you shouldn't have gotten out of it with, with that idea. Right. The data needs to be explained, like if there's pigment where there should be blood. And I guess that brings – Which there is, by the way. Right. right. And I guess that brings me to uh, another point because there might be situations where we're not just dealing with absence of evidence and so we need to put the burden of proof on them. There might be cases of of fraud. And and, uh, are there cases where you've determined it to be fraud? Oh, absolutely. I, I even have a term I use for, for this um, because in many cases it's a special kind of fraud and I use the term pious fraud. Mm. <laughs> and a pious fraud is different because uh, let's say – well, let's take a, a stigmatist named Lillian Burness from Canada and um, she um, – on certain regular occasions for a while was claiming to receive the stigmata of of uh, Christ and was bleeding. And I went to see her and um, actually not only spoke with her, but I shook her bloody hand Whoa. and um, took photographs. And I got a good look at her wound when she was hugging the person in front of me standing in line. And I got I practically have my nose against to look at the wound. Did and, she mess up a lot of people's clothing that way? <laughs> no, it, it had dried. Actually, oh, okay. And that's okay. one of the pieces of evidence that I had. Huh. So what happened is she walks out. The audience is already there. She walks out. Now, if she had walked out without any blemishes mm-hmm. and we saw the wounds open yeah. and bleed, this would have been astonishing. Yeah. Maybe someone could fake that. A special effects person could fake that. But it would certainly catch our eye and give mm-hmm. us pause. That's not what happened. What happened was she was already bleeding when she walked mm-hmm. out, meaning she could have just inflicted the wounds on herself. Right. Um, and, of course, I'm not able to claim that she did act fraudulently, but, but I'm just saying that a reasonable right. person could be very skeptical of this. It's indistinguishable from how it would work if it were a fraud mm-hmm. because she's already bleeding. Um, the wounds are only in the palms of her uh, – I'm sorry, the backs of her hands and the tops of her feet. Mm-hmm. not in the palms or the soles of the feet. Uh, therefore, clearly these are not the wounds of Christ. They are not through and through wounds. A, wound, a nail mm-hmm. wound would go through the hand and be a wound, yeah. entrance and exit wound and so forth. She had a superficial wound hmm. on the back of each hand and on the tops of her bare feet. Now, so right away these are not right. these are not authentic wounds of Christ. They're also... You wonder, well, why there? Well, because it's easy to inflict wounds there. Uh, I've demonstrated on TV shows, just take a take a little knife and just cut myself. Hmm. Uh, it's nothing. I, blood doesn't bother me, and it's a, no more painful than a paper cut or something. So, hmm. so what? But um, if you cut the palms of your hands or the soles of your feet, now you have trouble walking, and it's painful to handle yeah. objects because you've got a cut in your palm. It's yeah. very, very troublesome. So she was um, – the the stigmata was being very kind yeah. to her. The it was detail. being very selective yeah. and so forth. Furthermore, after she came out, just right away, the blood started behaving like blood would, uh, mm-hmm. ordinary blood of a non-miraculous uh, incident. That is, it begins to slowly dry and and uh, quit, quit uh, dripping. Mm-hmm. And so 
Um, again, just exactly what you would expect if she wounded herself just before she came out. She also did not have the wound in the side. He had a picture of a very dubious-looking uh, incident where that had ha- allegedly happened once. Mm-hmm. Uh, not convincing to me. Yeah. Uh, indistinguishable from sort of a painted fake or something. But uh, a wound in the side, now that would be a commitment <laughs> to slash open your, your side. So most stigmatists don't have that. They, surprise, surprise. She had a couple of little pricks around her forehead uh, as from the crown of thorns. So she had only these superficial yeah. things you could easily inflict and do once a month to keep up the pretense. And besides, now, it, it does point to uh, it does point to motive. You made a very good uh, point that I hadn't thought of earlier. That you know, the church doesn't want to necessarily support all of these because uh, it would be seen as idolatrous. But yet, that's more on a broad kind of doctrinal level, on an individual level with different congregations and other things like that. There can sometimes be benefit from having the girl with stigmata or, or a bleeding statue. Absolutely. Like and this is, this is um, you know, sometimes the church tries to sort of have it both ways. The, mm-hmm. On the one hand, sort of uh, cautiously saying, oh, now we're not, uh, we're not saying this is genuine and so forth. And then out well, of the other side of the mouth, but over. if it brings people, if it reminds them of Christ's suffering yeah. or something like that and so forth. It could, could not be harmful and so forth. They try to have it both ways. Oftentimes, I find that objectionable because it sort of injustifies the means. Yeah, yeah, In other certainly. words, it might, be, it might be sort of tell a little lie for Jesus. Yeah, they don't um, have them walk through a gift shop on the way there. But, but the, other, the other point I wanted to make about someone like Lillian Burness is that uh, I had met her before and talked with her at some length. Then I witnessed one of her, her bleedings and talked with her some more. And uh, I will say that she seemed not to be personally trying to collect money or do something crass. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if there was any bad motive, it might be just simply she was vainly yeah. looking for attention or something. But I can see that someone – again, I'm not saying she yeah. – I can't actually say what's in her mind. But I, you can see that someone – and there are a lot of cases that I've come across where I think this is true – that the person was actually – Doing not what skeptics often think, oh, they're just a fraud and they're trying to yeah. rip somebody up. No, no. Actually, they're self-sacrificing. Hmm. They're actually hurting themselves and not profiting in some obvious ways, hmm. going to a lot of trouble, a lot of suffering and so forth, for what they see as a good cause. Hmm. It's a fraud nevertheless. It's a fraud to renew the faith, promote the religion, uh, trump the skeptics. Uh, and so forth. But but it's a little different order of fraud, you see. So I use the term for pious really, fraud yeah. for many of these uh, these kinds of deceptions. They are clearly not the usual run of things, and the, the term pious fraud is, is useful. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. My particular background and familiarity with religion was not at all interested in these types of things, and so I sometimes, you know, sometimes don't really grasp the motivations of people involved. And yeah, you're right. Not always being a sinister motivation behind this. Maybe that would be an interesting question to close with. And that is, how do you balance your role as a skeptic, as as somebody who who wants to follow the scientific method and do that, uh, balance that with being a genuine, very humanistic kind of person trying to be sympathetic to people and open-minded and, and with matters that are very profound and, and important in their lives? Well, I try. Uh, it, it is sometimes difficult, but I try you know, always to respect people when those people are worthy of respect mm-hmm. so that someone who it appears to me is simply mistaken, uh, I certainly – I might try to correct them gently or or share with them another view or something – but I shouldn't be uh, tapping my head as if they're crazy or mm-hmm. suggesting they're fakes or something mm-hmm. if and, uh, and only if there's evidence of that. Um, many people are very sincere and have misperceived something. Um, people, for example, who were taking uh, photographs of the sun uh, with Polaroid cameras and getting – uh, in their pictures, instead of a round ball of the sun, they were getting this sort of arched doorway effect, very hmm. very stunning-looking pictures. I've seen many of these, and I later learned what was causing it and have learned to make them. 
But uh, people weren't faking anything, and suggestions that they were were just absolutely uh, not appropriate. They, this was just an accident of the mm-hmm. Polaroid camera. That particular model right. had a lens aperture of that shape, and it was just <gasps> happening through no fault of the pilgrims. But I, I, I think that um, when somebody, um, on the other hand, the pretty obvious explanation for something is a pious fraud or someone's yes. deceiving us or there's some actual evidence for, for the deceit, then I, I'm pretty hard on those yeah. people. Um, a priest, uh, I, I was asked first by a newspaper and then by the uh, by the Greek Orthodox Church to check out a weeping icon in uh, Toronto. Uh, it turned out that the priest who had had a previous suspect weeping icon uh, had been defrocked as a priest for working in a brothel. Oh. And uh, <laughs> so when I showed that the the icon was almost certainly faked by simply adding some some mm-hmm. uh, type of non-drying oil to it and under conditions that I could specify that were very, very clearly not what would have really yeah. happened with a real weeping icon, the church was uh, pronounced it a fake. And I was yeah. happy to be working with with the church, yeah. for the church, uh, at their invitation. Fair Wonderful enough. to do that. And um, so I try to make a, a distinction and uh, be very careful that I don't get ahead of the evidence mm-hmm. and, and that I try to do what I recommend for others, and that is don't start with the answer and work backwards to the evidence. Start with the evidence, um, sort of even even to the point of willingly suspend your disbelief, as Coleridge would say. Uh, because what you want is you just want to find out what's the actual explanation here. You don't have a dogma, even mm-hmm. a scientific dogma. Oh, I have to disprove this. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't allow myself to be called a debunker. I think it's just <laughs> as wrong uh, if you set out to debunk as if you set out to promote. I think you should just set out to find the truth. That's hard enough. That's very difficult. And and let the facts lead you wherever they will and then believe that. That's what I choose to do. Well, thank you so much, Joe Nickel. Uh, I think you're a really good role model for the skeptical movement in that regard and uh, modeling some of the some of the best traits of skeptics. And uh, so thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. My pleasure. best thing that I learned from Joe Nickel is that it's almost always otters. <laughs> the Loch Ness Monster, all of those giant sea creatures. Otters. Otters. How big can an otter possibly get? Well, that's the thing because, you know, lights sighted over Nevada, and, otters. And they will, they, they will <laughs> undulate, swim man. in rows and you'll have like six otters following each other. Oh, and it looks like one. this incredibly... Long <laughs> serpentine creature, and so yeah, so otters. Those are the ones that are in my attic giving me messages to kill people. That's right, it's, it's otters. It's otters, <laughs> always otters. Oh, <sighs> yeah. All right. Thanks everybody for listening in, and keep watching the skies. <laughs> For episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission.